Welcome to the fourth episode of Probably Polly. As always, I am your host, Michael Hay. I work, write, and study polyamorous ethics and art. I've been a practicing polyamorous community member for roughly eight and a half years. I think the question, questions that I get asked the most have to do with negotiating family tensions, friends, and other loved ones who don't understand being polyamorous and react, I think for most of us, surprisingly hostily to our expectation of what we think will happen. Or for some people, maybe exactly as hostily as they think, but also still scary. A lot of people ask, how do I tell my parents? How do I explain to my family that what I'm doing is ethical and appropriate and not horrible? And so I've been very lucky in that my mother has decided to come on the show and talk about our own journey over the last, I think, seven years is about right, maybe eight now. To give you a little bit of background, my family is, as you might expect, highly liberal, highly educated. Both my parents have master's degrees. I have a master's degree. My parents are from the North, which is usually somewhat considered less socially conservative than the Bible Belt where I currently live. We live in Charlotte, which is one of the least conservative cities in North Carolina, although more conservative than any of the other college town, well, than any college town, because it's sort of a haven of northern liberalism, but mostly in the form of bankers, which is sort of conservative. And so being told, you know, throughout my life that it would be okay if I was gay, for instance, I expected that my parents would be relatively understanding and, if not welcoming, at least not hostile about being polyamorous. Not just my parents, also my brother, who, being of my own sort of age and generation, I expected to be even more understanding, or maybe just to not care, right? Because it just didn't really seem about them. So I was very surprised when everybody cared a lot and was somewhere between extremely nonplussed and hostile. And then I spent the next near decade trying to work through some of those issues with them. So today what we're going to do is we're going to take turns asking each other questions in a form of joint interview that we hope will be useful to both sides of the discussion. My mom is going to ask me questions and I am going to ask her questions about what exactly happened during that time period, why she felt the way that she did. So I'm going to ask the first question to help set the context for the discussion. And that question is, how comfortable were you when I first told you that I was polyamorous? And how comfortable are you now? So I'm kind of looking for where you currently are, how much more you think you have or could go, and sort of the the distance we've covered. Well, when I first heard about you being poly, I was very uncomfortable, mostly because I had no idea what it was. Being my age, I had never even heard of it. In the meantime, I have talked with friends of mine. I work in colleges, so I talk with professors, and I talk with kids, and I've even talked with my own family, and I found out what poly meant. I think the normal reaction to something that you're unfamiliar with is fear, and I think that's where the hostility probably came from. So my first reaction was fear of what you were even talking about. When you don't have a vision of what you're talking about, you don't know what's possible or what's impossible. And so we spent a long time, we were in a car when you told me, we're on a trip coming home from Rochester, so that was about a 12 hour trip. We had a lot of time to talk about it, which was 
and it turned out to be good because we could ask a lot of questions and you could give us your answers. So in the meantime, I guess from that first initial reaction, which was, I don't even know what you're talking about, to where I am now, I've done some reading, I've watched videos, I've watched people who are in the poly community talk about their relationships. I've talked to relatives who actually were poly. I feel a bit more comfortable, but I still have many questions. All right, so as I mentioned before, getting from that point A to that point B took us a really long time. I know this won't be a perfect system, but I'd kind of like to do a one to 10 comfortable, comfortable scale, comfortability scale, how comfortable you are. Because I, I kind of want to know what, how bad the original first reaction was. I mean, I heard what you said, but I didn't hear what you felt. And you might have been sort of couching it because you don't, you know, you, people don't want to alienate the people around them. So if a one is something really, really bad, like I'm selling drugs on the one to 10 scale, and the 10 is something like I guess we'll just say neutral. At 10, there's just sort of no negative emotion. I don't really want to go for positive because I don't really know that the kind of relationships that the people around you form should automatically have a positive connotation or just, I mean, I feel like they're just neutral. Like if someone's like, by the way, I date people like a normal person, I feel like you're like, okay. Uh, it doesn't seem like a thing you're like, good for you, you know, about, which is sort of, I guess, what completely comfortable would look like. I would like to know how you felt at first. Where, how, and how you feel now? I, at first, was definitely one. I was, I was totally afraid, and I had a hundred questions. It's a long process to understand this style of living, so I would still say I'm in the lower numbers. I would definitely say I'm a four or five. Wow. So, one. So, like, crimes that could get you and your family killed and arrested were on the same field as how you felt about this? Basically. Jeez, that is so far beyond what I could even sort of comprehend. I guess what I would say is one, as in this is something I absolutely don't want for my child. Right. Well, I'm I, not sure it's the same as a crime, I guess. Well, there, I mean, but it's just like I don't want to know that this is where, where my child is headed. Right. Well, and there is an emotional limit. Humans just are not capable of having more than a certain amount of emotions. So, I mean, once you pass that ceiling, you're just past that ceiling. It's not as surprising, but I have a relatively low emotional response to anything that other people are doing that isn't life, like, threateningly dangerous. I'm wondering how you feel about your child now that you have a child, because I think that's different. You're in a role of protecting your child, and so the feeling that you are in danger is where I felt. I was when you told me. You were in danger or I was in danger? You were in danger. I was in danger. You're in danger of what? Like having a bad relationship? Having a bad month, a year? No, I think the danger comes in that you would get sick, that you would get a sexual disease, that your relationship would break, that you had built so carefully and so strongly, that the thing that did play out in our lives, I don't know if you want to put this on tape, that the thing that did play out in our lives where the woman contacted me because you were in a relationship with her daughter, I believe. Daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law. And all of a sudden, well, I, ex-daughter-in-law. I was pulled into a case with a crazy woman who was furious about your 
behavior towards her daughter and what was I going to do about it. That was kind of interesting that that came true because that was one of the things I was worried about. All of these things came to me in the car when you first told me. Yeah, but that's very different than what you just said, though, right? That's about uncomfortable situations you would find yourself in rather than uncomfortable situations that or dangerous situations for me, right? And so again, clarification, that was not the woman's daughter. It was her ex-daughter-in-law, which is important. But it was dangerous for you because she was threatening you and threatening me in her with, email. With what? What was the threat? I think the threat, as I recall, was that she was going to... Wasn't she going to call the police? Isn't that what she said she was going to do, is call the police? Not that they could do anything. There's no criminal offense there, so there she definitely no wasn't going to call the police. I'm talking about how I reacted emotionally to her. You know, I called your phone, I left emails, I left voicemails. I just needed to talk to you at that point. Well, I remember, because I think you forwarded me the email, I remember that she basically just said, if you're not an entirely morally bankrupt person, you need to rein your son in was sort of the upshot. I don't remember there being an instant, like a threat element. It was just more like, obviously what they're doing is horrible. You failed as a mother to teach him not to be horrible. Don't be horrible. Yeah, I didn't take it that way. I took it more like, oh my gosh, there's a crazy woman out there that's loose. Yeah, and when we've talked about this before too, but I, you know, of course I don't see how that's dramatically different than the same kind of stuff happening, you know, could have happened if I had been single and had been dating her. Because um, we had a situation basically where she was divorced and sep- well, separated pending a divorce. Um, she hadn't seen the guy, wasn't living with the guy, and then we were dating. And the mother-in-law felt like that was an awful thing to do because we were still married and they had sort of a religious perspective on it. So not, I mean, she'd already said she wanted to leave. The relationship she had been in was abusive. She was not going back and they were separated and, and not together. And that's definitely the kind of relationship I would have considered getting into had I been single at the time as well. Like if I met somebody and, you know, like my brother was separated for a while and we always used to talk about how unfair it was that no one would date him because they'd find out he was separated and be like, no. And, you know, she just refused to sign the divorce papers. She dragged it out for say two years, but they hadn't even talked except for about the divorce for two years. And, you know, so we'd, we'd actually covered the ground that we didn't think it was fair to not date people who were separated. So I was dating someone who was separated in sort of the same space that we had always said was appropriate relative to my brother. So what was the original question? You had this fear that something like this would happen, but this seems exactly like what would have also happened in the same context if I didn't have a primary relationship and wasn't with my primary relationship at the time, right? So if I'd just been single and met this woman, we would have had the, everything would have put up the same. That lady would have sent you the same email. She would have said, she's sleeping, he's sleeping with someone's wife. He's morally bankrupt. What are you doing? I think you have the ability to separate all of those things out and see more clearly the ladder of one thing that leads to another. I react emotionally. My emotional reaction was one of fear for you. Well, there is one thing you also have said in the past um, that I'm going to bring up here that I do think is a difference that you might not have remembered, which is that there's the potential, when, especially when you don't understand polyamory very well, to feel like it changed from being a temporary state to being a permanent state. And what I mean by that is the relationship elevator story about monogamous relationships and the quote goal that most people who claim to be monogamous have is date for a while, settle on someone, stop dating. So at that point, at the stop dating point, in theory, you are safe for at least a long period of years from the drama of dating. 
Whereas if I'm polyamorous, even if I'm dating someone, I might date someone else and create more of that drama that comes with early dating scenarios. And I think that's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that has helped me move up your scale from one to 10 is that I have lived 10 more years and I have watched so many relationships fall apart. I've realized that a lot of men or women were going out with other women while they were married and that's playing out in my life. And so everything that you've told me about Polly has made me stop and think about whether monogamy works or not. So I think that's part of my journey is uh, the experiences I've had with people close to me and also this new information that I have. That sets me up sort of really well for the next question that I had, which is what I think people really want when they ask me, how can I deal with my family? And I I don't give them this because I don't think it's a thing that exists, but I'm just curious how you feel about it, is a quicker way to get there. And I feel like most of the time you tell me things that have helped you, they are just time and patience on my part. That there aren't, don't appear to be things that I can do to significantly change this discourse. Because I don't, you know, despite what some listeners think, live in a fairy tale land, the fact that I am professionally trained to articulate ethical dilemmas does not seem to have particularly sped up the speed at which you accepted this scenario. And I, I feel like it should have done more of that than it did. And so I'm wondering if there were any breakthrough moments or aha moments or things I could have frontlined or suggested that would have helped. I think giving me written materials and giving me the interviews that my friend gave me Mm-hmm. Um, have really, really helped me at least see what you're talking about. Because when you began talking about it, I didn't even understand what you were talking about. So we were talking about a, you know, another culture that I had no idea about. So that might speed it up. I don't know. I think that over time, you and I have developed a really good relationship of being able to talk to one another. I don't think most parents can talk as plainly to one another as you and we can so I think that your arguments and the information that you have given me have helped me a lot to speed it up I don't know where I would be if you had not explained all of those things to me and that when I have an argument you have a counter argument which I go away and think about so how to speed it up I don't know I think everybody's in their own journey and it's just hard And something that I often say about relationship advice that I may have already said, I'll definitely say it eventually, is that in relationships, and I tend to use that word to mean any form of relationship, not romantic alone, you really want to pay people in their own currency, uh, which sort of, if you guys have ever seen the, what they call that, like like affection types or whatever, it's the same sort of concept. Uh, I just framed it long before I'd ever read the affection types. And it basically says something like, you know, if your person in your relationship's favorite thing is going to a movie and your favorite thing is getting ice cream and you want to reward them, don't take them to get ice cream, take them to a movie. And I think that works with information as well, because what what I did first off was I gave you the book that made the difference for me, which was basically pure science looking at how our species doesn't appear to be 
biologically suited to monogamy. And that's a very logical text, and it's a very scientific text. And I think you even read it, but I don't think it had any benefit for you or a major effect for you. And then after I, I sent you that text and it had no effect, I just thought, why send her text? They don't do anything. But I was sending you the wrong kind of texts. So you weren't really interested in, well, firstly, stories about why monogamy doesn't work. You were interested more in stories about creating a narrative that showed how my life could be healthy with polyamory was your concern, not explaining why I didn't think my life had a chance to work out in monogamy. Is that right? That's right. I'm, well, I'm a story person, so... Well, everyone's a story person, for the record. I did that wrong. You always... I mean, even... And that's why I teach all... The, when, I, when I used to teach argumentation, the first thing I told the people, literally the first day of class, is all arguments are stories. If your argument isn't a story, you will fail. But I had the wrong kind of story, was my point. My story was monogamy doesn't work, right? And the story you needed was polyamory is hopeful. And those are very different sorts of stories. Well, and monogamy doesn't work flies in the face of my monogamous relationship because that's where my experience starts from. And so I was thinking, it, I think it works for me. Right. Well, and again, of course, that's an important separation as well. So whenever I say a sentence like X doesn't work, I mean something like statistically on average X cannot work because you can never know about individuals due to the nature of individual variants, the bell curve, et cetera, that every individual has a unique experience. And that when we're talking about evidence, we're talking about evidence for groups, right? So the evidence is that monogamy has a lot of damaging issues for most people who engage in it. This isn't to say that it doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't to say that it doesn't work uh, even for a lot of people. And it isn't to say it doesn't work for you individually. And we also know, and I should have known this going in, that people highly privilege their own experiences and the stories of people close to them over actual evidence. So I sent my mom an entire book of science evidence saying it doesn't work, but of course she's monogamous and therefore most of her friends are monogamous. And of course she's also not divorced, which as we know means that most of her friends are not divorced, her close friends group, right? So when she started expanding the friend group and looking at people who were not part of her immediate social circle, she started seeing all of the divorce, all of the cheating, all of the problems that I was citing in this research. But her initial response was, all the stories that I know are monogamy, monogamy, happily ever after. And so it just seemed ridiculous for me to tell her this book proves that monogamy doesn't work when it was her whole life. Exactly. And that is not what I, I did not understand that. So I think that's one thing that could have sped things up was focusing on the positive half of the narrative. Here's the other thing that I, I wonder if this would have sped things up because this appeared to be the aha moment for my brother, which is... I'm going to try and sort of replicate it, although in this drier environment, it might be a little bit harder, but it went something like this. We were out and I think we were just still discussing how, I think he'd gotten to the point where maybe he didn't care, but he was still pretty negative about the whole thing. So maybe like year four, we were discussing how you were still really struggling and he was saying, well, but that makes sense. Here's all these normative social constructs that explain why that makes sense and why that's difficult for mom. And I was like, here's the thing. Everybody keeps telling me that this is something that I'm sort of doing to them, right? Dad says stuff like, well, you drop this on your mom and I. And Paul says stuff. And my brother says stuff like, how could you do this to your kids when I didn't have kids yet? Right? How could you just your theoretical future children? And because it's so stressful for them, they feel like I have an obligation to walk you through it. 
but I don't feel like anybody ever really sat back and realized that for a good four or five years, I was in an extraordinarily large amount of pain because everyone was constantly telling me that I was both horrible and harming them and that it was my job to be infinitely understanding even if they wanted to be really emotionally bad to me, right? That if they wanted to be abusive to me, that's fine because I was the one that stepped out of line. Imagine being me for a minute. And my, my experience was I went to my brother who has not necessarily always been my confidant, but for a lot of my life has always known sort of what's going on with me. And I tell him, hey, I have a new lifestyle and I have this new girlfriend and I'm excited about that and I want to share it with you. And honestly, it's a really terrifying experience coming out as anybody that's ever tried to come out as anything will be able to tell you. And it was especially weird for me because I went from being 100% or 80% or 90% every privileged dynamic you can imagine to almost self-selecting into a sexual minority, which suddenly makes me an oppressed group of some variety, right? And there was literally no attempt in the opening version of that by anyone to check if I was okay, right? Everyone's initial response was, you're horrible, what are you doing? And that was just insanely hard for me. And I felt like both sides should have been coming from the perspective of trying to not hurt the other person in that discussion, rather than feeling sort of vindicated in or justified in being harmful in some way. I don't see it the same way at all. I don't feel like I ever said you're a horrible person for doing this. My, I feel like I was coming from a place of fear. And once again, what I thought I was communicating to you was, I'm afraid for you. So this is the first time I've heard that you felt that we thought you were horrible. I've never thought you were horrible. I've well, always been afraid. You and dad have always gone to a lot of effort to put up a united front. And so I tend to take your guys' responses as being linked. Um, and I do know that, for example, at some point, Dad pulled Lissa aside to basically check while I wasn't around that I wasn't forcing her into this as like an abusive kind of thing. And that for me was really hurtful because it surprised me that he felt like that was an appropriate response. And I definitely heard from Dad, from you, from my brother, and I think generally from the larger community, this whole sort of, well, that's fine for now, but once you settle down to have kids, I'm sure you'll grow out of it, which is just incredibly patronizing and undermining and acts like we're just insane kids that don't know how to manage our own lives or acting out or being ridiculous. What, but, sorry, but to jump back to the earlier point, that's why I think telling that to part of a turning point was it started adding to his perspective when we had conversations, checking if I was okay. And I think that putting yourself into that empathetic space made it much easier to understand and to, to sort of be in the space that you should be in, which is, or that I think people should be in, which is, you know, I want to understand for me, but I, I get that it's your life and that it's not directly about me. And, you know, the, the things that you, that you say that sound like they're fair. And it's so funny because we're so versed in this in certain groups, right? So nobody would ever go up to somebody and say, or nobody I know would ever go up to somebody and say, man, how does it feel to have that ridiculous black hair to like an African-American or black person, right? Like, oh, that, that Afro is insane. How does it feel to be that black? Or even, are you sure you should have dreads? You'll never get a job are not the kind of things that I feel like 
most people would say anymore, right? Because we're very well versed. You don't say that or you don't say things to gay people. Like, you'll grow out of it. You'll want kids eventually and have a wife. And we even actually know that mostly, uh, at least in my generation, about uh, people who've decided not to have kids, right? It's considered very taboo now to say, you'll grow up and have kids eventually. Or when you get older, your body clock will tell you you want kids. This is a super sort of patronizing, sexist, taboo thing to say in my generation. And so it sort of shocked me that even though I see these norms being exercised by you, by dad, by my brother on a daily basis for all of these other groups, when it came to me, none of those norms were being exercised. And I was very shocked that that happened. And I thought what I was saying is, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? And I should have known that knowing you, if you have made a choice, you had thought about all those things. I remember reacting with lots of questions and I apologize if that's not the way they were interpreted. And also, the only thing I can kind of relate it to is, I mean, one of the things I relate it to is pregnancy, where everybody comes up and tries to tell you everything that you need to know, which it's it's just like, you know, you're, you're throwing up all day and they say, have you thought of eating gum? What kind of a stupid question is that? Of course I've done that. Of course I've done more than that. Of course, I've been to the doctor and I am actually on meds for this. I don't know why we react that way in terms of our loved ones. We just want to make sure. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? And it probably comes across as a rapid fire. You are not very smart for doing what you're doing. And you certainly will come around once you've thought of the answers to my questions. (laughs) Right. And, and also, I think, and, and some of this isn't, isn't something you can handle on the front side is the emotional content. And what I mean by the front side is that when you say something like, how can this possibly be good for your wife? Right. That just sounds mm-hmm. like you are harming your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that's because you're saying it with a sort of the, this emotional tone. Right. And one of the things that I use a lot in my work and that I suggest people use a lot is what I would call couching language which is to say something like, I'm not saying you are hurting your wife, but I'm, I, I need to understand how this isn't hurting her because while I trust you as a person to not try to hurt other people because I love you and trust you, I don't see how it could not be hurtful and I'd like you to explain that to me. Right? So when you add that extra, I know it's long and annoying people, but if you're listening and you have somebody in your life who is polyamorous or really any Thing that you have to deal with like this really anything you do with it at all they come home and are eating the wrong food and you want to have that conversation they're smoking cigarettes and you want to have that conversation adding that sort of language changes the dialogue from you trying to control them which is what it feels like when someone says how could you do this you're um it must be hurting your wife that's interesting you should say that because i just finished a 10-week course on how to um well i'm in a socially progressive church of course And so we're dealing with people who are completely on the other end of the spectrum in terms of what they believe is good for... I think we all believe the same things are good for the world. We all want everyone to be safe. We all want everyone to be fed. We want all to be housed. We just don't go about it the same way. And so the argument is not over the needs. The argument is over the systems that we use to to, to cover those needs. And so with the language that they're teaching us to use is how to have that conversation with this with someone who is so completely different than you in their beliefs 
And I wasn't armed with any of that information. Now being armed with that information, now I can see how I would have totally done it differently. But I think what you're saying is, as a poly person, if poly people could arm themselves with that or learn about that kind of language, that it would be easier on the people that they're trying to tell. Because you're not obviously going to get everybody who you're telling to know that kind of language or have that way of communicating. Well, I was saying two things. I was saying, one, if you are listening to this and you're trying to talk to someone about these issues, right. here's how to do it. Um, if you, And two, if you are a poly person who is having these problems, if you could convince that person to listen to this podcast, that'd be great. But even if you can't do that, you can relatively early on, when you are hurt by the thing that they're saying, step back and say, hey, I want you to know, I think we're trying to have this discussion and I think you're trying to say something like this, where you're trying to say, I'm worried about you, but what I hear you saying is, you're a terrible person who's harming people around me and here are some tools that I could give you to, to be able to distinguish those two sentences when we're talking so that if you want to tell me, no, no, you're a horrible person, stop doing that, which some people are going to want to tell you because they have a moral or religious or ethical hard point that they're not going to push on, you can separate that from when they're actually saying, I'm worried about you, which you'll find out most people who care about you are actually worried about you, not trying to harm you in that way. This, you know, also come up a lot. One of the, the things that I have found to be really fascinating is this idea that when people go to harm you or when they say something that sounds harmful, it is most likely what a attachment theory, attachment science calls a protest gesture. Right. And what a protest gesture is, is to make it the simplest possible. It's like when your child, a, a small child screams or cries because they're in, in pain or need something. Right. So you're in bed, your kid's asleep. He wakes up, you tell him to go back to bed and he just won't quit, quit screaming. He's protesting something because he, he doesn't like something, but he doesn't know how to explain it to you. And so his response is to just create this negative environment until it's resolved. And we all, we all do that. So when someone that you know cares about you says something that seems really biting and hurtful, it may be because they're just trying to, not consciously, but unconsciously, shift out of the situation that's uncomfortable, right? So my brother's original response, how could you do that to your kids, on that read feels like a protest gesture, that he's concerned about me, he's concerned that I'm going to regret my decisions, that I'm going to hurt my family long-term, that I'm going to feel bad about that. And his immediate response is to try and shock me back into a space that he's comfortable in. And he doesn't understand how that's actually harmful or how that doesn't respect my autonomy or how that doesn't respect me as an individual being or how much research or thought I've actually put into this because he hasn't done any of those things. Right. And, and that's also helpful. If you keep that in mind, it's been helpful for me to know that most of those things are protest gestures, even when I can't resolve them, knowing that makes them less hurtful or believing that makes that less hurtful. I agree with that because I think... I used to say to both of you, both of my sons in high school and college, mostly in college, as, as relationships were becoming stronger and maybe more permanent, I would say, is this a permanent relationship? And you would say, why? And I'd say, because I need to know whether I should get close to this person or whether I should hold them at arm's length, at which point you would laugh. And what does that mean, Mom? And I'm like, well... If you're going to have this person in your life long term, I'm going to react differently than if this is someone you're going to break up with because I don't want to break up with this girl. And you would laugh. But 
it hurts for me to break up with that girl. There are still our first son's first wife. It still feels like a death to me 10, 20, what, what is this, 15 years later? By the I way, still to, mourn that. to separate this out, she did not die. No. They got, they got divorced and she's not part of our lives in any meaningful way anymore. Um, but I, wanna, I just want to, you didn't clarify that, so it could still feel like a death because it was a death. Okay. <laughs> right, but, but it, it feels like a death even though it was a divorce. So I think there is that fear of pain for me as well. You know, is this relationship staying together when you came and talked to me about Polly? Or is this relationship breaking up? And, oh my gosh, am I at the point where I'm breaking up with my daughter-in-law? That was a very much in the forefront of my mind. And, of course, I also have trouble relating to that because that's not how I see relationship formation as appropriately functioning. right? From my perspective, if you want to continue those relationships, you had every right and ability to, you know, and... Well, you, you make, <laughs> my mom made a face, a really sad face. Uh, and and uh, my, my response is, from my perspective, it is the constraints of toxic monogamy that tell you you cannot do that. That it's an inappropriate social taboo that we have because you have to retain that one special slot for daughter-in-law. While I agree with what you're saying, I think, that face that I made was about how the relationship would be so different. That I believe that there's a relationship web, which consists of my husband and my son and my daughters-in-law. And where when that splits, then I have to make a decision about whether I'm going to continue that relationship and rebuild it in a totally different way. And here's something that I would not even have known to talk about earlier, which is, you know, here's a maybe useful talking point if that's a thing that you're running into. The polyamorous perspective is that relationships are more fluid and do not fit into those sorts of boxes. And this is important to what you're saying because from my perspective, it would not have to change the relationship were it a polyamorous breakup. Now, it would have to in a monogamous breakup because part of the way that monogamy is usually constructed in our culture, obviously there's lots of ways to do it, but the way that it's usually constructed is that it comes with built-in privileges. So daughter-in-law or son-in-law is a privileged position in monogamy, which can't be awarded to like 30 people and which requires a certain intense level of interaction to count, right, as being done well, right? So if you barely interact with your daughter-in-law, you're kind of a bad mother-in-law, maybe that sort of thing. Because polyamory does not assume that you're only going to have one major partner and it doesn't assume that your partners will necessarily be able to last forever, the expectation of that relationship is much more fluid. And one of the things that's interesting is I am on better terms with all of my polyamorous exes than I have ever been with any of my monogamous exes. Partly because my monogamous exes were full of sort of pain and bitterness and knowing I couldn't go back. Whereas the fluidity of the polyamorous situation both means that I could go back, but also that I probably left because there really was no reason not to leave, right? So in monogamy, I was often faced with a choice, is this really the one person I want to be with for life? And I had to imagine that person versus all healthier future possibilities. Whereas when you're polyamorous and you're dating someone, if you break up with them, you're breaking up with them because the only thing you have to ask is, is dating them improving my life or detracting from my life, which is a much different bar. And by the time you decide dating them is detracting from my life, there's basically no regrets left. If dating them literally just made your life worse, 
you don't need to date them. Now, granted, it didn't necessarily make my life worse to be their friend, but the actual romantic version of the relationship. So if you guys are listening, they're my exes. I don't mean I didn't don't like being your friend. I just mean that the reason that we went that direction is because one or both of us decided that it was not beneficial to keep dating in that construct. And because of that, it makes the, I would imagine, the relationship with that web more fluid because we, we describe... There's actually a whole lot of really fascinating poly literature on what they call the sort of extended poly family, that the people that we used to date tend to take up the places in our space that your massive web of, say, cousins and extended family takes up. So you say you only have a limited number amount of time to deal with the people that I'm dating, but I know that you keep up with like 50 or 60 relatives to a socially acceptable level, which is just an incredible time commitment that I would never really want to engage in. But I think if you looked at the people that I'm dating as having a similar requirement as like a second cousin, you would see that the relationship doesn't have to end and or destroy you. And that because it is a fluid situation, if they're around all the time, you have more to talk about. When they're around less, you have less to talk about. But also, you know, the the producer, for example, for this podcast is an ex-partner of mine, right? So it's not like I'm still not someone that you could have discussions about. If your relationship with her, if you'd had one, you didn't really know her well enough to have them. But if you'd had a relationship with her about me, you could still be like, hey, how's your podcast coming? How's your guys' work coming? How is, you know, you would still be able to have that relationship in whatever context she still relates to me. And I think that's the difference between polyamorous and monogamous breakups is that in most polyamorous breakups, you still relate to each other. And in most monogamous relationships, you don't. Not that that's universal, but... I'm, I'm just thinking, you've given this so much thought over years, literally years. How... Am I supposed to get to that point? Well, I think you get to that point, at least from my perspective, I would think you get to that point by asking that exact question and sort of playing proxy, right? So if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I think you have cancer, you don't go, well, I don't think I have cancer. You need to give me a, go, I need to go out and get a doctorate in medicine to check if I have cancer for myself, right? You expect, you accept the expert opinion in that space of the person who you trust to be in that, to know those things which is part of why it's so frustrating from my perspective that you don't trust me to do that, right? Or that it feels like you don't, I'm not, you know, but that, and this is one of the things that's always difficult about being an ethicist period, is that for some reason, most people think they're an expert on ethics when they have not spent hundreds and thousands of hours reading and thinking about it, which is always fascinating to me, right? And so then someone comes to you and says, here's this one decision that for whatever reason I have become basically a specialist in. Most people who go off and decide to be poly, spend a lot of time on it because we've been told our whole lives that doing it would harm our partners and most people don't want to harm our partners. So we're like, are we actually horrible people? And we have to ask these questions and read these books and do all this back work. And it's not like when I showed up, I didn't say I did all the back work. You know, I said, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I spent a lot of time talking about it with my partner. I spent a lot of time discussing it. I spent a lot of time researching it. And, you know, you were like, well, I don't understand it. And my response would be something like, you don't need to understand it. Right. Understanding is not a requisite for acceptance or compassion or trust, right? Because that's the whole point of trust is that there are certain people that you understand are trustworthy, even if you don't understand all the things that they're doing, which allows us to function much better than if everybody had to be an expert on everything. But what you're saying is when you came to us, we didn't say, how are you? And I'm feeling like you don't say, how are you to me either? When I try to deal with this, there are only a certain number of people that I can even talk to about this. 
the hammer that people come down on me with is probably beyond your understanding. When I tried to talk to people who are close to me, it was obvious that I was never going to talk to them about this again. So there's very limited space for me, and I'm in order for me to solve problems, I have to talk about it. That's my mode of working. And so to go and try to think through these things is very, very limited and very, 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 very limited. I don't have anyone really that I can talk to about this except one person who lives so far away. I mean, I can do it on the phone, but I like to do it in person. And then I have another person who lives pretty far away. Um, those are the only two people that will talk to me about this. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's something we all, I mean, those of us who are poly also recognize, because obviously it's not like I just talk about it with regular people. I, 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 I have a, I have a friend that's a, who was a, a major, a major activist in a, in a, like a bunch of minority communities, most of the minority communities, super oppressed community groups. And when I, I told them that I was poly, they said they'd rather date someone who had AIDS. By the way, I didn't ask to date them. They were just saying that idea is so atrocious to me that I'd rather date someone with AIDS than date someone that has poly, which is a horrible thing to say regardless, because you shouldn't be harping on people that have AIDS either. I'm not trying to promote that stereotype. I'm just saying that that's just a horrible thing to say, but it's the kind of horrible things that people say when you tell them you're poly. Right. Right. Um, and when you tell them you're a parent of a poly child, you get the very same thing. And, and I lost a lot of friends too, especially female friends, by saying, I want you to know that I'm poly. I don't want to date you. Bye. I don't want to date you either. Oh, you're gone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that wasn't a good friendship. Yeah. And of course... I think that our culture has an incredibly toxic view of relationships, which is one of the claims that polyamory makes is that we have this. Well, I mean, right. So, so polyamory and uh, revolutionary sexual ethics in general suggest that monogamy is structurally institutionalized into capitalism as the primary replication of the means of both production and consumption in the system, which is to say that a single monogamous unit forced to live on its own with a nuclear family is the single most costly way to live and requires you to produce the most wealth and consume the most goods, which puts the most wealth back into the system. So the capitalist system is very incented to keep people in monogamous didactic relationships, right? It is incredibly helpful to monogamy for you to have to buy a four bedroom house for your family where I am living in a three-bedroom loft with five people, right? My costs, my consumption, they're nothing by comparison. And just to be clear for your audience, you're not living with all these people in a poly relationship. Oh, yeah. So this is an extent. I have friends that live with me. I have uh, a mother-in-law that lives with me. I have a child that lives with me. I actually don't have any partners living with me except for my primary partner right now. I don't want your friends parents to think that they are in a relationship they are not yeah yeah right well and i've had that right uh my my male friends have had their parents think that i was dating them or using them in that sexual way or something like this or had a crush on them right right that's right i'm not living with any partners except for my primary partner but but i guess my point is whatever you have experienced i think you're wrong to think that i haven't experienced worse 
at the hands of my oh, friends. I'm not saying you haven't experienced wars. When you started with, you cannot imagine. And trust me, I can imagine. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know. But um, have you thought about that? Have you thought about how I have been treated? I have sort of thought about it, but I don't share some of your core values that would make that meaningful, right? So for me, if I told someone, my friend is doing X, my son is doing X, my parents are doing X, my brother is doing X, and they were like, oh my God, you're a horrible person for allowing that. I'd be like, huh, we don't need to be friends anymore because you are in perfect ethical lapse. Goodbye. Right? So it wouldn't register as emotionally painful for me beyond that they are horrible people. Um, but you maintain a lot of relationships with people who you disagree with on a much more fundamental ethical level. I have almost no relationships that are not with people who are on the same page with me about my major ethical considerations. And I don't know if that's a cultural thing or a generational thing, because I definitely know there was a lot of, you know, you don't say impolite things, you don't talk about politics in your generation, which lead to those sort of friendships. In my generation, all we do is talk about politics. It's just, it's really hard for me to see a critique about like a second level person as being a legitimate ethical critique. No, I'm not saying it's a critique. I'm saying, I'm wondering if you ever thought about that before. And also, it's a change that you made. It's not a change I made. It's not a change I made. You assumed that I would be born and be monogamous and be a normal person. It is a change from when you were 18. So between the time that you were 18 and the age that you are now, you changed how you feel about dating and about how you're going to live your life. And... When you came and told me, it was a complete surprise. I didn't, I wasn't in on the five-year process that you went through. There were no discussions before the day that you said, I'm Polly. So I'm five years easily behind you on making that change. And even knowing, as I said at the very beginning, even knowing what you're talking about. All right, and I'm actually very excited to tackle that question, but we're gonna to have to save that for next time because we have reached our 45 minute mark. So, I hope you have all enjoyed this and you can tune in in two weeks for the exciting conclusion to this interview. All right, see everybody next time.